Welcome, you are listening to This Must Be The Place. This is Liz Taylor and I'm now in the town of, I would have called it until last week, Launceston. But, you know, as representative of my schooling into the ways of Tasmania, I now know it's called Launceston or Lonnie. I'm here at the Urban History Planning History <laughs> Conference, uh, which is being held at the Launceston campus of the uh, University of Tasmania, which has a tourist tram that goes up and down. I'm here with one of the presenters from this morning's session at the conference, Alicia Bennett. Welcome. Hello, thank you, Liz. You are a Tasmanian by, you know, background. I am. I'm actually born in Launceston, Lonnie. Right. Lonnie. Which is more, that's more what you call Lonnie. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, um, on my way to, to recognising how to talk, I saw a bread truck before that said, you know, basically we sell Tasmanian bread and it had like six bullet points about the first point was like you know we have good bread but the other five were saying run by Tasmanians employ only Tasmanians use only Tasmanian products and then at final point was made quote here unquote not quote there unquote <laughs> so where is there where is here so a little bit defensive about yeah. it. So you presented this morning on right-sizing. Can you give a, an overview of what right-sizing is? Yeah, so right-sizing is a concept that um, I've been developing up in collaboration with others that I've been working with. So Dana Cuff, Professor Dana Cuff from UCLA and um, Damien Madigan, Dr. Damien Madigan from UniSA. Um, and it's a, it's a concept of um, working within existing houses to enable upsizing and downsizing simultaneously. So not necessarily creating new fabric um, and... Um, creating small dwellings and large dwellings at the same time, so a, a house that can switch between the two. And part of the inspiration for this is actually looking at how um, certain areas are already being used in this way, sort of covertly. Is that the terminology or secretly? Yeah, so there's already a lot of um, dual occupancy, you'd say, um, already happening in Tasmania. It's happened quite a lot, um, particularly post-war. So when you had housing shortages and a lot of single women living by themselves that's where the kind of granny flat movement um, took off but that was also happening within existing houses so because Tasmanian houses are quite big you've got a lot of space um, again I talked about this morning about hills and about how they can be exploited so you have double level houses it it's quite often means you can have an ancillary living space adjacent to a primary and you had some examples uh, my favorites were the things that present to the street as garages but what are they really yeah so the, that came from the research I was doing for my PhD which is all about stealth so um, it started trying to figure out how we could densify and then it ended up switching around um, and trying to figure out how you can get around the policies that try to encourage densification but actually prevent it. And part of that is that the planning process, um, you have opportunities for objection, but there are certain built elements and typologies that are just kind of invisible to people in terms of objecting. So garages, parking spaces tend to not be seen and buildings that are articulated in a particular way, so with heritage features or whatnot are also invisible so there was one project in battery point that is an apartment block where the street front looks like it's a, a an indent made and a little window for a garage but in fact that's a false facade completely it's just a plain wall they've just articulated a sense of it being a garage and mm -hmm. so that's okay it was a blank wall it would not be okay yeah and it's funny because it's in a it's in a, a heritage area but it, that somehow still blends in acceptably to be a yeah, garage it's not, it's not part of what we'd identify as that heritage fabric but it's still kind of responding to an existing in the same way that we do with heritage fabric so maybe it's a different type of heritage built heritage of parking <laughs> this is true this terrifies you I'm I kind of like I really liked it in the sense that they're so veiled like because people are so determined not to see parking 
it means you can kind of just cloak all these things in oh this is this is a parking spot it's kind of like I know you have done a lot of work on stealth urbanism it's that people that live in vans and so on right so yeah yeah so it's something pretending to be something and it's not and usually you're trying to adopt things that we just completely you know that eye passes over that we don't actually draw attention to so is there much interest in Tasmanian cities for increasing density well there is from a government point of view so do I will just we'll pause while while someone's getting some directions they're discussing changes to the program okay yep it seems like the government interest in density is more conventionally about uh, apartments is that yeah so there's um I'd say the enthusiasm towards density is not equally distributed I'd say Mm -hmm. that um there is a as there is in most places a kind of community opposition to it because of what they think it might be what the community um um what they assume that density is because we associate density so closely with apartment developments um, and in a place like Tasmania where there's very low scale developments very suburban in, in a lot of ways very low um, low rise um, that when you suddenly conflate apartment development and density that there's a, just a wholesale rejection of that so it's trying to understand well what density actually is trying to read what um, existing examples of density already uh, within the Tasmanian context and then how you might adopt those as models going forward rather than models from elsewhere that you might imply. And Im- implicitly they're sort of acceptable to people because they're getting through the system and, and yeah, well they're known. People mm. understand them, people live in them, people have them as neighbours. Mm-hmm. They can kind of tolerate them to some extent. So what are some of the who what are some of the benefits or the types of people that would benefit from a, a house that's essentially kind of modular is that that's not really a word but you can adapt it to be bigger or smaller and yeah, have sections yeah, yeah so it enables um as we talk about downsizing and upsizing so if, if for some reason you're living by yourself or in a needing less space you then don't have to pay for as much or you can lease out and monetize i guess um aspects of the house that you don't need as much so particularly in gig economy and instable, uh, unstable um, incomes, it's a, a kind of um, useful strategy. Um, and there's also a lot of the elderly population or age population that have a lot of money tied up in assets but don't have income um, or sufficient income. So it can be a way to kind of offset being able to live in that house and being able to continue living with certain in, within your community that you're used to, but also um, with a certain quality of life. Yeah, and you also have um, the possibility that if you know the grandkids want to move in or something that they can because you've got that space. The pressure on older people with big assets is is sometimes to to sell um, and move into retirement housing and so on. And that's a big, I guess, a big commitment, and potentially or often the, the layout of apartments, um, whether they're specifically for older people or just generally, is they aren't designed to be flexible. You have to decide the size you want at the outset and that seems to be part of people's reluctance to downsize as you're locking in that size. Yeah but also we talk about um, elderly populations and aged as other like those mm. people don't want to live like that. It's, mm. How would you want to live? Would you want to live in an aged care um, complex or a house and if there's no alternative in between then of course mm. you're going to want to try and live in the house if you can so it's just about thinking about what you would want to live in at different points in your life and how a dwelling might be able to adapt to that rather than the other way around. And can that help with, I'm thinking of what some of the issues are with people ageing in place, is often these older houses aren't set up for ageing in place in terms of accessibility. These kinds of right-sizing adaptations, can they be used to make it those kinds of improvements of, as well or is there sort of inherent 
barrier to the way housing is set up. To, yeah, so to it doesn't it doesn't have to rely on the house being set up a particular way at the start. There can be um, adaptations done to it. So alterations, additions, extensions. I was talking earlier about um, a, a, an idea that's coming out of Calgary at the moment about how you might plug in um, pods that have all of what you would need for aging in place. So. That, um, at the very least accessible bathroom spaces and bedrooms but they're taking it to the nth degree and having you know, toilets that can read your urine and then predict whether you're going to have you know whether you're dehydrated and whether you um, are going to have particular medical conditions and it would flag your medical team like that's an, that's an extreme edge <laughs> but just at a basic level they the idea that you might plug in attributes to your house and that they might be treated much like a medical device so much like if you break your leg you get some crutches you only need it for a certain amount of time and then you can return it and that does two things one you don't have permanent changes to the house that might not be suitable for another person but um, by reframing the element of the house as a medical device it um, taps into other systems of finance and loaning and um, begins to kind of completely change the home space into something that opens up and makes it more affordable and gives people more options as well. So we're at the Urban History Conference, Planning History Conference. To what extent is your work in this area influenced by or informed by things that happened in the past? So this was this was my little. Um, it's not point. a trick question because no. one one obvious thing I would say is that in the example you walked through the Battery Point, it's it's you're looking at it, a very historic landscape and how it's already used. But yeah, you so may have other answers. Well, the concept comes from studying the existing context. I think mm. um, I feel sometimes a little bit out of place at a history context uh, conference because, as I explained the design process is not linear so we don't study something in depth and really understand it and then apply it we kind of um, identify something of interest and then um, take that on and start testing it and then we'll quite often go back to the historical context later and see what else we can kind of get out of it and see um, what other implications it might have so I, because I was showing it as a work in progress and I only showed elements of the historic research I feel a little bit out of depth but yeah it's definitely part of process that we adopt. Has your mind changed as you've been doing this? Yeah well, certainly I think um, I started the project when I was doing my PhD having been in government and so mm -hmm. I came at this sort of again I was trying to look at how do we densify and how can we get people to densify and it's completely shifted because I've now seen that it exists already and now we're trying to encourage more of that maybe we're not actually interested in what the government wants to do maybe we're actually more interested in um, the best elements of what we're already doing and how you might encourage that rather than trying to enforce something on top of an established place um, that doesn't fit. Do you think it's particular to regional cities or sort of built fabric of some like Hobart, Launceston are, they're smaller cities, lower scale generally, would this work in Melbourne? Yeah I think well the outer suburbs of Melbourne are very characteristic of inner areas of Hobart and Launceston. I think there's an attitude here of, and this is an Australian attitude that Boyd's identified, that kind of make do, do it yourself. Um, what you see a lot in Tasmania is that kind of incremental development where people do things as they can afford them as well. So there's that kind of attitude and culture that's brought into it. But I think it's certainly pre prevalent in the outer suburbs of Melbourne as well. Definitely wider, widely applicable in a <laughs> suburban nation. And can you give just a, a maybe a quick example of what might I know we don't have any visuals here, but what might this look like in a a house that's being uh, downsized or right sized? From the street, probably wouldn't look like any major change. What you might notice from the street is perhaps extra shoes by the front door, maybe some more mailboxes and bins, um, but they're just the kind of subtle traces of something that's happening inside. So, um, from the street, it would be primarily inside the dwelling or tucked behind it, perhaps. Um, but inside, it might be subtle changes like. Um, 
where doors are st strategically located, um, how you might distribute things like wet areas, toilets and bathrooms and kitchens. So rather than having all of your traditional living areas together and your bedroom sleeping areas together, that kind of mingling of them into clusters so that you can allow it to, um, a house to operate as one big house for one big family or into compartmental little zones as well. Yeah. Sounds cool. Oh, I it, oh man, I was excited too. The, the very historically noisy tram. We could pretend it is. It is in fact, yeah, some kind of uh, earth moving machinery. As it trundles away, I might wind up. What's What's been a highlight of things you've seen here, Alicia? I always like this conference because you see a huge diversity of um, topics on Australia in real depth, like one thing in a lot of depth. And so there'll be something that you maybe knew a little bit about, but then you all of a sudden understand it in quite some depth and then to think about how that might overlap with other things you're interested in is a highlight. So there's been a lot of presentations like that and that's the value of this conference in particular. All right, thanks Alicia. I forgot to mention that you are, what's your position at Monash? I'm a lecturer. At Down the hall from you at Monash. Yes, I knew that as well. <laughs> <laughs> at MARDA, Art, Design and Architecture at MARDA and you're continuing to work on this project, right? Yes, this is an ongoing thing. That, again, it started in the PhD, doing some stuff with City of Sydney and now taking it back to Tasmania. So it kind of started in Tasmania. It's gone to the big cities now, taking it back from the lessons learned there, which is quite exciting.